if it's anxiety that's ruminative and you're just catastrophizing, right? These are cognitive thinking patterns that we all engage in because we're human. It's a matter of figuring out, is this rooted in my history? Is this rooted in my lived experience? Is this rooted in like, am, am I actually responding to an anxiety provoking thing? Or is it my mind creating this narrative for me? And I think that's the key when we think about anxiety. If you're creating a narrative from something based on your anxious attachment, that's when you kind of lean in and try to correct those thinking patterns. But I think it's important for people to know, like, if you're in like a toxic relationship, like, oh my gosh, keep yourself safe first before you do any of these. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. So my next guest, her name is Dr. Kristen Casey. I started following her on Instagram because of her amazing social media platform when it comes to mental health. She's a clinical psychologist and one of the leading experts who specializes in anxiety, sleep, and insomnia. And she's known on social media for her expertise in anxiety and insomnia, which is one of the reasons why I started following. And Dr. Casey, I one thing I noticed, we have a lot in common. So I know noticed that you have a background as an EMT and you worked in the VA. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into this field. Yeah, I noticed we have a lot of similarities. Like if we knew each other in real life, we would probably be besties. Um, I agree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, my first career, I was an EMT on an ambulance. I was a paid EMT and I also volunteered for a local first aid squad when I lived in Jersey. I made a lot of great friends and I realized it was a field that I loved, but I couldn't be a part of because I was so burnt out. <laughs> so medical providers, I give you a bunch of credit. It was just not for me and it wrecked my sleep as well. So um, I did that. And then I realized when I was going on these uh, on these calls, I noticed that I was like really drawn to the crisis calls, which it was weird because people that I worked with were like, I don't want the crisis calls or people like wanting to commit suicide. And I was like, give me all of them. Like I will be there. And I noticed that I just wanted to establish more of a deeper connection with people. So I decided to continue my studies in psychology. I really didn't have a plan. Um, I was just hoping to get through college because it was one of the only stable things in my life at the time. So I'm like, if I could stay in college, maybe I'll make something of myself. Um, And now full circle, here I am. I never thought I'd be here. But uh, yeah, that's where I started. And then in terms of my clinical studies with my doctorate program, um, for a psychologist, we have to do an APA accredited internship and postdoc and, and all that. So in order to get my hours, I was placed at the VA, which at the time was a really competitive you know, place to be in Phoenix. And I, I loved it. It was really great training. And uh, thank you for your service. I know you served our country as oh, well. Oh, yes, you're veterans. welcome. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. supporting. Um, yeah, yeah. So at that point, when I was there, I just fell in love with the evidence-based treatments for anxiety and sleep. So that's kind of where it started. That's awesome. Yeah. So I was in the military. And when I got out of the military, I ended up in corrections. So not the EMT, but you know, kind of still you get a mesh when it comes to, you know, law enforcement and, and the medical personnel. And I was burnt out very similar to you. But I think too, because I'm such a sensitive person in terms of energy, and and I am such an empath, it was just I was surrounded by negativity all the time. And I felt so burned out at the end of the day. I was coming home. I was dealing with anxiety. I was dealing with sleep issues. And now you fast forward and I, you know, I became a licensed clinical social worker. And, and like you, I interned at the VA. 
And it really kind of opened that door to my interest with working in the mental health field and with veterans. I actually still work for the VA now, and I'm doing part-time now because I'm actually trying to make my transition out. I love the VA and I love working with veterans, but it is exhausting. It's a very, very high (laughs) burnout field. Yeah. So I Mm -hmm. like you, I kind of am going into this entrepreneurship type of field, but I still have this love for mental health. And I think a little bit because of my own background of dealing with anxiety. And now you grew up in Jersey. So do you feel that your childhood or your upbringing had anything to do with maybe why you got into this field now that you are in the field and connecting the dots? Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? I look back and I'm like, oh shit, that's why, right? I look to my parents and I'm like, you created my career. If they hear this, they'll laugh. Um, but really, I just kind of wanted to learn more about myself, a tra- about trauma, all of that stuff. Um, I was born in New York City, uh, raised in Staten Island, New York, moved to Jersey. We moved very unexpectedly. And as you know, living in New York and around that area, 9-11 and all that stuff happened. Um, and then my parents ended up getting divorced after that. So I was kind of on my own to figure out how to make a life for myself. And it was really difficult to kind of look back and try to figure out how do I, how do I not only figure out my life, figure out what I want to do, but then what does this all mean? And I think that's kind of where I landed psychology and, and really, really trying to get into the mental health field, because not only do you learn about yourself, but in learning about yourself, you can help other people. And I think a lot of people get into the field, you know, that have at least dealt with some mental health issues before or have traumatic pasts and all that. And I just think it's great that we're able to be in a field and help other people that go through the same thing. Yeah, I agree. You know, when I look back at the way that I was brought up and I grew up in Chicago and my upbringing, what was what I thought was the norm when I grew up, I look back because now I have a 13 year old and I'm like, oh, fuck, no, like I would <laughs> right? I would raise shit if my kid was doing half of the stuff that I was involved with or the stuff that I did. And I started thinking, I'm like, man, I think a lot of the patterns that I had, even in relationships and anxiety, really stem from how I grew up. So do you feel or do you see with your patients that there is a connection with childhood and dealing with anxiety and, and some of that that mental health stuff that we're really seeing today? I, I do. I do. I'm a firm believer in that our early childhood experiences and our development as children and just environments, whether they're predictable or unpredictable and all of that, that, that truly does um, affect our psyche and it affects our way of viewing the world and experiencing the world. And I also think there's all these other intersections, right? It's not only childhood. It's if just say you were raised, you know, you're white and you're raised in a white family, all that, that's different than being a person of color, right? And back in the day and also it being unpredictable. So I think there's a lot of different facets to it and childhood absolutely affects anxiety and mental health. I agree. I think that we sometimes especially if you're privileged. And, you know, me, I I come from a a, a multiracial ethnic background, but for the most part, where I'm at in my life right now, I am privileged. I am living a higher middle-class lifestyle. And we tend to forget that someone's socioeconomic background, how they grew up, their ethnic background, did they grow up poor? Did they grow up middle-class? Did they grow up with money? That really all affects their education, their access to food, their access to, you know, how they were raised in terms of social norms and how they view the world and how they act in relationships and social settings. So I think you're absolutely spot on with that. So let's talk about anxiety. So what is the difference between what we would consider normal anxiety and maybe what would be labeled as an anxiety disorder? 
when we think about anxiety in general, I like to look at the reasons for it, right? So our bodies are designed to keep us safe, not necessarily happy, which I think sometimes we confuse, right? We want to be happy and fulfilled. But our bodies um, from a biological level literally just want us to survive. So with anxiety in the 21st century, we're looking at, wow, you know, am I living in poverty? Are my kids okay? Can I make it to my job the next day? That will cause anxiety, meaning you're worried about things that you can't necessarily control. When it becomes a disorder, um, it's when it impacts your functioning to the point where you can't do the things that you need to do. For example, if you're so worried about your job or you're so worried about things in general that you can't even leave the house or it impacts your relationships or it impacts your mood in a way where you feel like you can't really gain control of it. And I, I think I'm a firm believer as well, now that we're talking about this out loud, that anxiety is a normal human experience. I think it's a matter of figuring out, you know, is this normal human experience within the context of what I've experienced in my life? Is that something that's sustainable? Is it helpful, right? Because there's anxiety that's helpful, there's anxiety that's incredibly unhelpful. You know, we're just kind of ruminating. So in terms of it being a, a disorder, it does have to impact and impair your daily functioning as it relates to like job relationships and other recreational activities. I think that's a good point because it's really important to forgive yourself, first of all, if you're dealing yeah. with anxiety, because we all do at some point in our lives, we all do, you know, whether it's divorce, relationships, breakups, moving, switching careers, working out, you know, and there's some level of anxiety that is healthy because if you look back to our criminal days of, you know, living in the savanna and having to look out for predators and that's that level of anxiety can save your life. So I think that there yeah. are normal levels of, of anxiety and I use the term normal very loosely. But if somebody is dealing with anxiety from day to day basis, and maybe it is impeding their functioning in terms of getting up in the morning or going to work or dealing with other people, what are some strategies that somebody can maybe shift their mindset from a more negative mindset to kind of shifting into a more positive mindset? Because although it sounds simple, for some, it's, it's really difficult to just switch the mindset. Because I think for some, it's like, how do, well, it's not, I'm not an on and off switch. So how do I just turn that on? If I can not have anxiety tomorrow and wake up, I wouldn't. So what, what are your thoughts in terms of strategies that someone can do to start shifting that mindset? Yeah, you make you make so many good points, even about the primal experiences, right? Like now it's not a bear trying to eat us in the woods, it's other things, right? So for our bodies, we're still identifying these mental experiences as threats, technically. I mean, it's not a bear, it's a thought of like, oh my gosh, am I gonna be able to figure my life out? And I think when we um, when we really conceptualize anxiety and we really figure out how can I manage this, the first step is noticing that there's an issue. I think that's with anything is like, you know, if you're going through the motions and things just aren't fitting, you're an empath too, right? Like, so it's like, if the vibe is off, the energy is off, I know something's not quite right. And if that's kind of your inclination and something feels off, it usually is. So kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, I'm noticing there's a shift or something's off. What, what might that mean? And just getting curious and sitting with yourself. So the first step is noticing. The second step is creating space. And some people don't have the luxury of doing this, but creating time and space in your life to acknowledge that you want to think about this and you want to be curious. Some people are working two jobs or single parents. There's a lot going on. So it is hard to create some time. Really, it only takes like about 10 minutes, you know, just each day to start reflecting. The third in my mind, um, and I, I don't really like to simplify things because as humans, we're complex. But in terms of tips, you know, figuring out, is this way of thinking helpful or unhelpful? Bare bones. You know, if it's super helpful, then you might not be having issues, right? So 
there's a part of it that creates um, chaos in our lives. And it, sometimes it's these ruminating experiences of like, you're just circling the drain. I know that's a really morbid way to think about it. Like you're circling the drain in terms of like anxiety, like you just can't get out of this hole. And when people are really stuck, they can't see the light. They just know they don't want to be there. So really taking some stock and noticing, and you might come up with solutions that you didn't know before just by creating space for yourself. I talk about this a lot on my podcast because it's just so relevant. We, we live in a society of constant distractions, constant notifications, instant gratification. And I did a podcast with uh, Dr. Jen, and we talked about perfectionism. And one thing that she pointed out that I loved was that our brains have not been able to catch up. We're really in this age of technology only in the last 50 years. And, you know, we're, we're not used to all of these distractions and these notifications. And I think that it is causing anxiety to go up. I know I've seen this and, I, and I've and i experienced it myself with oh, just same. Dis- yeah. <laughs> distractions and not being able to get things done. And then when I procrastinate, then I get more anxious. So do you, have you seen with your clients or just in, in your expertise in general that there's a link between social media and anxiety? Is social media making things worse? I honestly think it is. And I think it is. And that's a huge blanket statement. I think there's definitely benefits to social media. As you know, me and you are on social media. I'm on social media all the time. It's like I live and breathe social media when I'm not with my clients, right? So I think it's just important to note that like anything that we're viewing, our brains are thinking about. Like we're taking in the information and we're thinking about it. And like you said, there's so many things happening. There's so many things going on that our attention spans in terms of like just sensory perception, right? I mean, we could we could do a million things all at once and our brains aren't exactly designed to multitask in that way all of the time, right? Because then we're just gonna kind of keep thinking. And here's the cycle that I noticed the most, especially with, I do this too, and my clients as well. They'll start scrolling on social media and they'll start to notice like, I don't feel right. Like I'm kind of starting to get anxious. That didn't come out of nowhere, right? You, you're, you don't just wake up and you're like, oh, I'm just super anxious for no reason. There's usually, usually most likely a reason, right? And if you're just aimlessly scrolling, it could have been a post that was like from 20 minutes ago and you're just now catching up and your brain is like, oh, we weren't quite cool with that. So I think it really is a matter of being more intentional with um, your choices on social media as well. For my own sanity, I don't go on the explore page. I don't go on the free page. I just don't. Mm. I just look at certain hashtags Cause I know that there's somewhat of a control in there of like, if I'm in a really bad headspace or I'm just not feeling it, I'll literally, I'll just look up puppies and like, I'll, I'll just like let myself do that. And that's it because otherwise it's just not going to be so helpful, even though our brains like want to go there. I agree. I always say that social media is your library. So if you had an amazing array of just books in your home and you were feeling like shit that day, would you go in your library and pull out a book about murder? Probably not. You're probably, you're, you're not going to open up a book that's going to make you feel like shit. Like you want, you're not going to want to view images that are just like chaotic. You're going to want to read something that's going to make you feel at ease. So you have to treat social media the same way that you would treat a library in your home because you are exposing yourself, whether it's subconsciously or not to junk. And, you know, we know that Facebook and Instagram, you know, these algorithms are designed to keep you on Line. They are designed to oh, yeah. 
make money. However, they don't they don't give a shit if you feel bad. They don't care about your feelings. So. Yeah, they're ma- they're making money. Yeah. They're making money. Yeah. And and you know, I think you're right. Social media can be a great platform. You use it, I use it. I use it in order to help people. Mm-hmm. Um and so you can you have the ability to expose yourself to things that are going to be helpful. And now there's no judgment if you want to follow a bunch of only fans, do you, you know? Yeah. But if if yeah. you find yourself anxious and if you find yourself feeling like crap from the things that you're exposing yourself to, clean up your library. I always tell people that. I always notice too that with social media and my phone, I really have a, a trigger when it comes to anxiety and my phone. If I don't have my phone next to me, I get anxious. If I don't have my phone with me in the bathroom, I get anxious. Yeah. And I'm like, this is a problem. It's I, crazy, I'm isn't anxiety it? with social media. I know. It's wild. And I think the whole premise of anxiety is a focus on things you cannot control, right? So if your phone isn't with you, you're going to think, I don't have the provisions to control what's going on, right? Because you're like, if I don't have my phone near me, then I'm thinking about this. Or what if I get a text message? Or what if somebody calls me? I mean, yeah, and you'll get to it, right? But our minds aren't designed that way. It's just like, oh gosh, I just need, I need it near me. And I think with social media, it puts us in a really vulnerable place to not have control over what we're seeing. And, and you made a you made an excellent point before of like, we're, we're just not designed in that way to take in all of this sensory information all at once. And think about it, if you put up, put up a post and 10 people like it, right? Some people are like, oh, it's only 10 likes. That's 10 people, like 10 human beings that have looked at that post and have taken in what you've put out there. So just imagine, you know, the reach that you would have, right? If you have like 100 people or like whatever, and then think about being a person on the other end of that, right? Like you're watching this and and seeing all these things and you're like, oh, 100 people like this. So it must be good. I mean, I think we just, we're just wrapped in this vortex and it's just kind of a black hole sometimes. It is. And, and I'm guilty of this. I get all these comments on amazing post, amazing, amazing. It's that one troll, user 591020, who just, oh, why am I so triggered right now? Why am I so bothered that this random user is just has to say something or has to troll one of my guests. And I had to really check myself to be like, okay, well, why are you triggered right now when you have 99 people that are loving the post and you have Mm -hmm. that one person who doesn't, it's okay to have difference of opinions. And I have to check my ego sometimes. I'm like, why am I feeling anxious? And I think it's really goes back to me not feeling accepted even from when I was a child. And, you know, but speaking of social media, I noticed for me, one of the things that I've had a really difficult time with, and I'm, I'm really making a strong effort to get a grip on it is my sleep. Because Mm -hmm. I even notice I stay up on my phone, I will stay up late, I know what I'm doing. And I know that it's having issues, but I end up it's I don't know if it's because I feel lonely sometimes, or if it's because it's a mixture of boredom, loneliness, anxiety. And next thing I know, two hours have gone by, I'm getting six hours of sleep. I know that you specialize a lot in insomnia with anxiety. What do you see in terms of your patients with maybe some of the connections with anxiety and insomnia? Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. They're so intertwined. 
it's like the connection is is literally incredible. So you can do every other sleep hygiene tactic out there, like wake up at the same time every day, regulate your circadian rhythm, increase your sleep drive, meaning like you're not napping, you're not drinking caffeine, you're not taking stimulants. You could exercise, you could lead the healthiest lifestyle on this earth and anxiety will keep you up no matter what because it's a survival tactic as you identified before, right? So even if you are physically exhausted, and you're like, oh my gosh, I need to rest. I have not slept in like a day or two. Anxiety will keep you up no matter what. So with social media, as you're scrolling with troll comments, I, I get that way too. I'm like, what the fuck? Like what? User, <laughs> well-adjusted people don't make fun of strangers on the internet. I just have to keep reminding myself that, right? Like we're not going to be for everybody. Everybody isn't for us. That whole thing, these cliche things doesn't make you feel better, but I mean, it kind of helps. Yes. Um but you don't have the opportunity to respond, right? So I think, again, it goes back to control sometimes too, or childhood, like not being well-liked or feeling like you don't fit in. So if you don't have the opportunity to handle that stressor, it's going to keep you up at night. And it's the same thing when you scroll social media, you might come come across a post that really gets you anxious or really gets you worked up, or maybe it's like a controversial view viewpoint or something like that. You have no opportunity to handle that stressor in the moment because you're literally just scrolling. It's like a passive thing. It's like, almost like it's happening to you. So I always suggest really avoiding social media if you can at night. I know that's impossible. <laughs> so if you are going to be on social media, really try to use a harm reduction approach in terms of like, like you said, hey, maybe not look at graphic content or look at content that's only going to be helpful in terms of aiding sleep. Because we do a lot of things that keep us up at night when we logically know we shouldn't. But our minds are just like, we're curious creatures. We just want to know stuff. So I think that's part of it too. Yeah, I notice too, even if I'm like cleaning or I'm doing, you know, just things that I'm supposed to be doing to focus, I have this habitual habit of checking my phone. But sleep has really been difficult for me. Um, And it's not necessarily for me falling asleep, but my issue was I would get maybe five, six hours during the week and I was go, 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 go. And then during the weekend, I would sleep 11, 12, 13 hours. I mean, it was bad. It's really bad. And I'm getting to the point now where now that I've gone part time, What's helped for me has been my morning routine and kind of just forcing myself to get up, viewing light, really making sure that um, I'm setting myself up for the day. So for somebody who is maybe listening, who's struggling with sleep, what are some techniques or some coping mechanisms that you recommend in order to improve sleep? Yeah. I mean, I think we look at three things. We look at sleep drive, which is the body's biological need for sleep. So how physically exhausted am I going to be at night? But sleep is restorative. It's not, it's not really for relaxation. It's to restore things. It's to organize things, right? So the purpose of sleep is important to keep in mind as, as you listen to these tips. So if you think about it, if your sleep drive is very high, you've exercised, you've exercised your mind, your body, all of those things, you're going to need sleep to restore. So you're going to need more hours of sleep, the more active that you are. If you're less active, you might be, you might need less sleep. It's not necessarily a negative thing. It's just really managing your expectations for your body. Second thing is circadian rhythm, which you already identified as like, hey, you know, exposing myself to light bright and early in the morning, having a morning morning routine. When we are able to set our circadian rhythm, which is our body's natural sleep-wake cycle, our body will operate like a machine. And again, we talked about privilege and things like that. Not everybody has the privilege of waking up at the same time every day. Again, harm reduction approach, as close to that intended wake time as possible. Even on the weekends, people cringe when I say that. I'm like, if you're going to go out and go on a bender on Friday night and have to wake up at six, I mean, you're going to really have a choice there, you know, in terms of like figuring out if you want to stay out or not. So waking up at the same time every day, 
the the key here is like when people hear me say that they're like yeah 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 whatever it's so important for our bodies because our bodies are so sensitive because they're still reptilian in that way of if I see light I'm becoming more awake melatonin secretion you know it, it really is regulated by our circadian rhythm so if we really think even deeper about our circadian rhythm again this is the second pillar of sleep um, the third is managing anxiety when we wake up at the same time every day endocrine function happens around the same time every day. Melatonin secretion happens at the same time every day. Even things down to like bowel movements happen at the same, like around the same time every day. So your body is on this like schedule of events. And when you wake up later or earlier, it doesn't quite know when to send the signals out. So melatonin secretion might happen later or earlier. And you're like, why am I not tired? Well, it's because you got up at six yesterday and then noon the next day, your body's confused. So, you know, trying to maintain some consistency in any aspect of life is important. And then the last is anxiety. And I focus a lot in my treatment with people on this one pillar because the other two are kind of a little easier to implement. Anxiety is hard. So really managing your thoughts and getting control of your mind. And it's almost like practicing. So you go to boot camp before you actually are able to enter the service, right? Like you need to like test yourself and make sure that your abilities are up to par. It's the same thing with anxiety. You really need to kind of test out some strategies during your awakened state to practice if you do have those anxiety thoughts at night. So really trying to get used to like um, relaxation strategies. So diaphragmatic breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, things like that. Because the whole key is engaging your parasympathetic nervous system, which is our relaxation response. It's impossible to feel relaxed if our sympathetic nervous system is engaged, the cortisol and all that stuff. So really getting your body into a state of relaxation is going to help you sleep. So really what this looks like day to day, and people are like, okay, give me exactly what to do. Try to wake up at the same time every day. Try to avoid naps if you want consolidated sleep at night. Not possible for everybody. Um, try to avoid caffeine and stimulants later at night. Really uh, be curious about substance use at night, like alcohol um, and over-the-counter sleep medications like Zequil, uh, Benadryl, which is basically diphenhydramine. It's the same exact drug. Really being mindful of you know the stressors that you have in your life and trying to manage those stressors to the best of your ability and only using the bed for sleep and intimacy. Um, nothing else, even social media. You know, when I think about that and I hear you talking about, you know, viewing light and doing these things, it it's kind of dumbfounding how, you know, electricity hasn't been around that long. It really hasn't. <laughs> right. So yeah. we as humans for the majority of our existence were used to waking up with the sun. And when the sun went down, we didn't have any light. I mean, eventually we had candlelight, but we didn't have electricity for the majority of our existence. It, electricity is really new. It's very new in terms of the existence of you know us as a human species. So I think that even from an evolutionary standpoint, we are not used to this much sensory overload. And so I agree with everything you said. And, and a lot of things that I'm trying to do as well is trying to view light early in the morning within the first 30 minutes. If I'm having anxiety at night, trying to write things down, like I, if I'm thinking about bills, sometimes it helps me to just make a list. Let me make a list of the things. I cannot do anything right now. There's nothing I can solve at this very moment. If you can't solve it right now, you know, try to write it down. And those are the things that have helped for me because I I simply would sit up all night and the next thing I know I'm ruminating and I've now now I'm worried about the time. Well shit, yeah. now it's 2 a.m. Right. I gotta wake up <laughs> right. in four hours. By the way, yeah. don't check the clock because that, that <laughs> makes it even just makes it even worse. So, you know, I think those are really great points. And I was that person. I was waking up, you know, 12 hours one night, six hours one night. And my nervous system, I think, was in such overload. And when I started thinking about the root of why my nervous system was in overload, I'm like, well, I went through trauma. I was in an abusive relationship. 
I've had all these stressors and my cortisol is out of whack. Well, no wonder why my nervous system is completely unregulated. So now that I've been working on the nervous system and working on those triggers, I have found that my sleep has been better. So it's it's, it's amazing. I love how you identified the nervous system experience too. Because I mean, I think, you know, when I think about people who have gone through trauma, especially people who are super empathic who have gone through trauma, it's really difficult to feel like you'll get a sense of normalcy again in some sense of, you know, in some sense of whether it's sleep or anxiety or something like that. But like, if you really like zoom out and think about this, people go through really hard things and we can't expect our bodies to just like flip of a switch be okay after that. I mean, I mean, trauma affects the body in so many ways, you know? So I think really trying to figure out what am I holding my um, standards up to? Is it the other version of myself? Is it other people? Is it social media? You know, because I think we meet new versions of ourselves maybe every month, every year. And it's important to just kind of keep that in mind. Expectation management is important. I saw a post that you did um, on veterans and how the studies and the data shows that with vets, sleep issues are like 30 or 40% higher than the normal population. Why is that? Or why do you think there's that link? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of reasons. Um, When we think about there's predisposing factors. So if you have like a predisposition to like hyper arousal, meaning like, even as a kid, you, you know, you were just anxious as a kid, right? So like nature nurture. So if you're a woman, you have a higher chance of experiencing insomnia, if you know, you kind of went through trauma, right? Like, so all these things make make sense. When we think about veterans, the thing that sets them apart compared to other populations is that they're ingrained in a different way. So when you go through boot camp, depending on like exactly what you do for the military, I mean, that is an entirely different lifestyle than usually how people grow up. Most people don't grow up in like this very like military structured way. So when they get to boot camp or they get into the service, I mean, it's a total reprogramming as you know more about this than I do. It, it just reprograms your brain in a different way. And they don't really... Um, value sleep in terms of the training and all of that. I do know, obviously, there's like different provisions now. But if we think about the history there, it's not like they're saying, make sure you get your eight hours. They're like, here's some energy drinks, please do your yes. job, you know? So, <laughs> so I mean, yeah. it's, it, I think it's a lack of value of sleep as well. Or maybe it's not that they don't value it per se. Again, I don't know, because I haven't served our military. But maybe it's just a sense of like, it's just not a priority. It's not. It's not. It's not a priority. And there are so many stimulants. That's just like the norm. Smoking, you would think that we're in 2022. I mean, I was in in 2006 to 2010, but everybody would smoke because that was just the norm. Um, Energy drinks, you'd go on a six mile run and instead of eating breakfast, you down a Red Bull or a Bang, you know, and that to me, like, I'm like, that is insane. And I, I would see that time and time again, sleep when you die, we'll figure it, you know, we'd go, we'd go out and then we'd go run, you know, six, seven miles. And of course, a lot of people are young. So luckily their bodies are capable of doing that when you're 19, 20, 21, it catches up with you. But I think you're right. And there's, there's an, there's a reason why a lot of veterans have higher stress, higher mental health, because it's really not a priority. I think they're doing better at it now than when I was in because social media wasn't a thing back then. But I think that um, 
you know, PTSD even is is fairly new. It's a fairly new diagnosis when you, when you look at the DSM and you look at mental health in the grand scheme of things. It really wasn't recognized until not too long ago in terms of the data and studies. I mean, we we knew it as shell shock before, yeah, but yeah, we we a lot of people don't realize that this was not something that was treated. This is not something that there was a lot of studies or data on, and it wasn't really until the last I would say fifteen years that it was taken more seriously. Seriously. Even with PTSD, I mean, one of the diagnostic criterion for some people, the presentation is different for everybody, but like it could be sleep disturbances. So, I mean, mm-hmm. sleep and anxiety and all of those things are embedded in all these other diagnoses, especially for service members, because I mean, you see a lot of crazy things. And how does your body respond? Wow, I have trauma. I have vicarious trauma. I have, you know, all these different memories that are flooding in. I have flashbacks. I have all these things that are going on for me. How do I explain it? Maybe I'll take a medication. Maybe I won't talk about it. Maybe I'll push it down. Maybe it's normal. And I think that's the key here is like, I think a lot of us who are in the military go through it, or a lot of our service members go through the military, they come out and they're like, I know that was normal for the culture, but now I'm out. And now I'm trying to transition to civilian life. Like, what is normal now? Like, I have no idea. I just can't sleep and I keep having these flashbacks. What do I do? I had a lot of those issues too. And one of the biggest hurdles that I had when I transitioned was relationships. I had gotten out of a really, really toxic marriage and it was really difficult for me to manage my anxiety in the relationship because I come from a more of an anxious attachment background. I would say I'm more secure now, but I definitely was more anxious and still have those more anxious um, tendencies when it comes to relationships. So let's talk about anxiety in, in relationships, especially when we're dealing with more anxious attachers. What are some of the ways that someone can manage their emotions when they begin to feel anxious, especially when they're dating or, or navigating relationships? That's a really good one. That's a really good question. I, when I think of anxiety, it obviously affects so many different things. And a lot of people will come to therapy because they're like, hey, my, my partner is upset that I can't because I have no chill. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't know how to get, get through this. And I'm worried about them. And I'm worried about if they're, if they're mad at me, like all these different things. So I think in, in many scopes, it's really trying to figure out, is this person activating your fight or flight in some way that reminds you of a past situation, childhood, right? If not, is this person not providing reassurance, right? Is this part like, what is this person doing that is kind of causing me anxiety? A lot of the times for anxious attachers, their partner can be a really healthy, helpful, amazing partner, and they will still experience this. And if that's the case, sometimes it's more of an internal job than it is like a couple's experience. And when you really think down and you think deeply about this, anxiety is about things that we can't control. And if we feel like it's unpredictable, we're just going to wonder and worry and try to make everything right. And a lot of us are perfectionistic and in that way. So if you have a partner and you are anxiously attached, the one thing that I find is the most helpful is actually creating space, (laughs) creating space from your partner. And I know it's the opposite of what you want to do because you want to lean in and like talk about it and like try to figure it out and all that stuff. The key is to create space. And what I mean by that is if you notice my anxiety is creeping in, I'm kind of overthinking, I'm going down this rabbit hole, set a timer for 10, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, however much time you have, even if it's two minutes and just allow your mind to think about it. I'm pulling from like scheduled worry time. It's like a tactic that we use for insomnia. So you sit there, you think about it, Think about it, think about it, think about it. Okay, is there any solutions to this? No? Okay, let me try to just sit with it. If you're obviously in an unsafe situation, if you're in a toxic, abusive relationship, these tips are going to look a lot different. So this is just for people who are in like somewhat healthy relationships. 
if you're in a toxic relationship and it is really unhealthy and you are very anxious, your body is literally trying to tell you something. Your body's yes. saying, we're not cool with this. What's going on? You know, right? Like I need to get out. And sometimes we ignore those signs because we just want to maintain the relationship. We think we're going crazy or there's something wrong with us. No, you're reading the room and you're trying to figure it out. If it's anxiety that's ruminative and you're just catastrophizing, right? These are cognitive thinking patterns that we all engage in because we're human. It's a matter of figuring out, is this rooted in my history? Is this rooted in my lived experience? Is this rooted in like, am, am I actually responding to an anxiety provoking thing? Or is it my mind creating this narrative for me? And I think that's the key when we think about anxiety. If you're creating a narrative from something based on your anxious attachment, that's when you kind of lean in and try to correct those thinking patterns. But I think it's important for people to know, like, if you're in like a toxic relationship, like, oh my gosh, keep yourself safe first before you do any of these things. Two things that you said that really stuck out. And I think that as someone, me personally, who has had more of an anxious attachment background, I'm also extremely intuitive. And when I look back, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. When I was in some of these situations, it was my body and my intuition screaming that this person is toxic and there is some needs, lots of needs that are not being met. And there's a reason why your attachment system is being activated because there's something that this person is doing or not doing that is activating this. So I think it's really key. And you mentioned that to, to really ask yourself, okay, A, is this a toxic situation? Is this a stable relationship? Is this my anxiety attachment, you know, going off? Or is this my body's way of telling me that something is wrong with this situation? I have found that in some situations that weren't necessarily toxic, but weren't serving my highest good, that my intuition would often fight with my logic because, you know, I'm mm. very, clin I have a clinical side. I'm very logical, but I'm extremely intuitive. You know, most people that listen to my podcast know I do tarot readings. I do psychic stuff. And so- I love it. Um, yeah. And so I have this clinical mind and then I have this very intuitive mind and oftentimes they would go at it because I have had situations where my intuition, sometimes I, I will know things before they happen and sometimes I just know that somebody is a narcissist or very toxic or whatnot. And I've had times before I was really in tuned with my intuition and before I really trusted it, that my intuition knew that there was something going on with this person. But then my mind would be like, well, what evidence do you have? And then I would ruminate and overthink and overthink and overthink. And in time, you know, it, it luckily I would, I get away from the situation. But then I was also in patterns where I would meet somebody who wasn't necessarily toxic, but maybe they were playing games and they just, you know, they weren't ready for something and I would ruminate. So what I found that is helpful for me now as a more secure with anxious tendencies, being 36, being a little bit more mature, is that I write things down. And sometimes I have version one, version two, and version three. And sometimes I'm sending them to my girlfriends. I'll be the first to admit it. And I'm like, which one do you like? And then I at times have not sent them. I at times have found my own clarity and I'm like, you know what? I gave myself some time to think. And even though I talked to my girlfriends, you know, probably to death, and they're probably tired of hearing it. At least I didn't send paragraphs to this person. And the person eventually showed me on their own that they just weren't worth my time. So I think that really setting that time for mindfulness and trusting your intuition are really two keys for anxious attachers. I don't know if you would agree with that. I I wish, well, I, I was going to say, I wish I could record everything you said, but we're recording right now. So that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you completely. And and I think for people who I, I'm with you, I, I tend to be really intuitive, really spiritual, 
definitely not psychic by any means, but more so kind of like a really have a really good read on like vibes and stuff. I think people with anxiety or anxious attachment, they second guess themselves and they try to find the logic, right? And they, yes. they try to like, like you said, I love how you described it of like a battle between the two of them. And I like sometimes to conceptualize anxiety as your intuition is there. The the alarm system is just going off a little more than it used to. So if you have like a faulty alarm system, meaning an alarm that's going off all the time, even with subtle things, you know, then you're going to like look into those things really, really deeply. Whereas maybe, you know, you're, you're meeting someone and maybe it's not like necessarily a red flag. It's just like an orange flag, maybe even a yellow flag bordering green. And you're like, oh, it's a red flag. So I think it's that, that anxiety sometimes can can color things in a different way. And it leads us further from our intuition than we'd like. And that's why I think talking about it is so helpful, you know, kind of talking with your girlfriends and therapy is also helpful. And even just social media and, and tips is helpful, especially for people who are empathic. Yeah. I agree. If, if you're walking down a road and you're on a hike and you're next to a cliff and you see an orange flag that says proceed with caution, you're not going to keep going. You know, you're not going to take the <laughs> yeah. chance to fall off the cliff. You're going to turn around or you're going to find a different route. And I think that sometimes when we're navigating relationships, we tend to question ourselves instead of actually questioning the situation. And so I try to look at it from that standpoint that if my friend or if my daughter was coming, now she's not dating yet, but if she was to come to me and said, Hey, this is the person that I'm dating. What would my advice be to her? Would I would would I be okay with the person that she's in a relationship or friends with or whatnot? And if the answer is no, then I usually have my answer nine times yeah. out of ten. So when it comes to communication, because I know that some people that have a more anxious attachment style or even just deal with anxiety in general, sometimes even communicating when it comes to relationships, work, social norms, I know that can sometimes be really difficult. What are some tips that you have for people that maybe struggle with communication or struggle with communicating their needs, whether it's based out of fear or whatever the root is? That's a really good one. And I think really the first thing is having the conversation with yourself first. Like I tend to be extremely anxious. I'm better now than I was in the past, but um, I would like you overthink things. I would like send paragraphs. I would like, if people would give me one word answers, I'd feel the need to fill the space, even if it's bosses, friends, partners, whatever. And I learned that that's not what the situation calls for. I'm having this anxious experience and it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to kind of lean in full force. It means I actually have to lean out and think about it have the conversation and then proceed with caution. So really it is just say, for example, you're at, you're at your, your job and your boss says, Hey, I need this by close of business today. And just say they seem upset about it, right? You have no idea if your boss is upset at you, upset with your performance, upset with something else in their personal life, but I'm sure your mind goes there of like, wow, I got to get this together. They're mad or something. And your mind's going to go there. Right? So I like to look at things for what they are, not more than what they are, but then also kind of keep this flavor of like, what is my gut telling me, you know? And if my gut is telling me something's not quite right, I'm going to try to come up with a way to have the conversation with myself in order to rehearse. So um, I might, in my mind, initially start thinking, okay, I'll do that. Are you mad at me? Are you good? Like, what's going on? Your vibe's off, like all this stuff. That's not going to be so helpful because they might be in a different headspace. So I might say that to myself in the mirror and say, wow, that vibe like totally did not check out. What do I do about it? What's a more effective way to say that? Like, it's okay to have those feelings and that vibe. What is going to get across? And how is this person going to actually receive the information? Because the whole point of communicating, especially if you have an anxious attachment, is how can I voice this need, voice this desire, voice this feeling in a way that the other person is going to resonate with and then respond to me in a way that I'm going to actually be okay with. So it's like this whole orchestrated process. 
And I think it's really trying to be as concise as possible while also relaying things. So for example, with that boss situation, I might say something like, totally noted, sounds good. Is there anything else that you want me to be aware of? And that's a blanket statement, right? In my mind, I want to ask all these questions, but hey, that's an opportunity for that boss to tell me like, hey, you're messing up or something. So I think really rehearsing with yourself is is probably the best tip that I have. I love that. And it's, it's open-ended questions. And I, I find that people who have more of an anxious attachment style, especially with their communication, they tend to be very intuitive because I think that, you know, even that that connection from when they were infants or when they were their children, very keen on body movements and body language and tones of voice, you know, so they do oh, tend yeah. to be more intuitive when it comes to other people. So I do tell my clients to trust your intuition, but sometimes when you feel that urge to say something right then and there, it may not be the right time. It may not take it, sit with it a little bit, write it out if you have to. Because also I noticed that with me, I would attract a lot of avoidance. And Mm. the more I would pull in, the more that person would push. And then the more I would be like, what's going on? Talk to me. Why won't this person talk to me? And so I found that as I've gotten older, a little bit more secure, I've had to ask myself like, okay, if I can't force this person to say how they're feeling, I do encourage people to not hold it in and to say how you feel because you don't want to have your needs go unmet, but maybe take some time to sit with your feelings, navigate your feelings, because sometimes in the moment, we think we feel a certain way, but in 30 minutes or maybe even the next day, you might feel completely different or you might have a little bit more clarity. So I think what you said was really spot on and just taking some time for mindfulness and maybe not responding in the moment, but kind of navigating how to respond. But I also do think that if you're going back and forth, back and forth, that's also not necessarily healthy if you're kind of like in this space of indecisiveness and then you're ruminating and then your anxiety is like increasing tenfold, write it down. Just write it down. And then you can choose from there. Do I want to send this? Do I want to modify it? I've done yeah. that. <laughs> I've, I've done, done a lot of too. modifications. <laughs> where like I've addendums. written out. Yeah. <laughs> I've done a lot of addendums, tons of like a big paragraph and I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know what? That's a little too much. Let me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let me, let me, let me reduce that. Yeah. Just, just how you describe just the process of, you know, wanting to like communicate, like o- almost like over communicate in a way. Cause sometimes I think people with anxious attachment there, I agree with you. They're incredibly intuitive because some of us have grown up in very unpredictable environments and we've had to, we've had to literally look at cues and, and gather more information to figure out if we're safe or not. So I think it's a very healthy and helpful skill from maybe childhood and even in certain situations, it just might not be so helpful in, in all relationships, you know, but I think for us, um, and I say us, cause I have anxious attachment, a little more secured now too. allowing things to unfold is also a power move. And I think for people with anxiety, we want to just control things and contribute and try to like make things work sometimes. And there's so much power in just letting shit be like, seriously, like just yes. seeing how somebody shows up, like if they show up yes. and you don't feel insecure and you kind of like, okay, it's, it's, checking out, then like, cool. But if you have to constantly pull to get the person even respond to you, I mean, I think that's data too. There really is a lot of power in that. And my friend would always, my friend, best friend Fee, I talk about her a lot and my friend Christy, you know, they always would say, just give it time because somebody's always going to show you who they are with time. And, you know, whether that time is a couple days a week or however long, you know, a month, 
it, it will always reveal. See how the person shows up for you. Or if somebody wants to, trust me, they will. And if they're not showing yes. up for you the way that you need to, then they're going to show it. You won't need to necessarily say anything. But you know, if, if it makes you feel better, like I have a client right now and she's going through something, you know, a situationship and she's like, well, do I break up with him or do I just, <laughs> do I just block him? You know, I don't know what to do. Should I say something? I'm like, you do what makes you feel better. If it makes you better to send a breakup text, send it. If it won't matter, then just move on. You don't owe him anything. If he's not showing up for you, he's pretty much ghosting you. So if it makes you feel better to send it, send the text, just send it. But sometimes taking that time and just stepping away really solves the problem for me, I would say 99% of the time. But for those that are listening and you know maybe they're just really struggling with what to do in the moment. So if somebody is really just anxious and overwhelmed right now, what are some coping strategies or things they can do to kind of bring them back down to a normal level of what we would consider calm, cool, and collected? Mm-hmm. I have I have two tactics in mind. And when you use them together, they're really helpful. So the first is diaphragmatic breathing. So people are like, oh, you just want me to breathe, like just sit and breathe. That's not going to fix the problem. And I acknowledge that, but it's going to get you to a place where you feel more regulated. And that's the whole point because if you are in an anxious situation or you are just ruminating, you want to get to a point where you feel like you have your faculties about you. So if you're about to present for a class or for your job and you are so anxious, you're going to stumble over your words, right? So getting yourself to a point where you feel like a little more calm. The key with diaphragmatic breathing is it is a skill that you learn with practice. It's not just simply breathing. And the whole key here is that if you breathe in through your nose, you hold it and you breathe out through your mouth, you want to engage your diaphragm. We breathe through our lungs and our diaphragm. Our diaphragm we mostly use when we're laying down in bed. Um, we have we use it for breathing overnight, restorative sleep, all that stuff. We tend to breathe a little deeper with belly breathing, and it tends to get the person to kind of slow down. If you're able to regulate your breathing, you could regulate your heart rate. If you could regulate your heart rate, then your body thinks you're okay. And that's the whole key is like mind-body connection. So really, really trying to get into the, the muscle memory really of like breathing deeply when you start to notice that you're anxious. I've, I've trained my, I've literally trained my body to this point to the minute that I start to feel anxiety, whether that's in my body or my mind, I tend to like take a really deep breath and I'm like, I got to do some deep breathing now. Another key to this is deep breathing engages your parasympathetic nervous system. And how I remember this is the sympathetic nervous system is your stress response. Uh, parasympathetic nervous system is your relaxation response. It's almost like you're parachuting away from your stress the only way I remember it. So if you're able to engage that relaxation response, it's pretty impossible to feel super anxious, right? So deep breathing. The second thing is once you get to a point where you kind of feel like, okay, my anxiety is still here, but it's not completely gone. The stop skill from DBT is great. So picture a stop sign and it's an acronym. So stop, take a deep breath, which is the deep breathing, um, observe, and then proceed with caution. So it's kind of like we were talking about before of like, let me get myself into a headspace where I know what to say, or I know exactly how to, um, how to engage with this. Yeah. So everything starts with the breath, right? We come into this world with the breath, we leave with the breath. And I think that people really underestimate the power of breath work and mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, one thing that when I think about anxiety for me, um, one thing that I really struggle with is when I am traveling on planes. Mm-hmm. I really struggle. As much as I love to travel, my anxiety, as soon as we hit turbulence, it's a 10. It is a 10. I'm in panic yeah. mode. I'm thinking about the plane crashing. It's it's really that bad for me. So 
I have found that deep breathing, thinking about a place that really brings me comfort. And there's something that I've heard of. I'm not the expert in this, but it's called box breathing, I think. So mm-hmm. you take a couple deep breaths in, you look at a square and go from left to right, and then you hold it and then you take a deep breath out and doing that from the diaphragm. And I have found that that has at least minimized some of the anxiety for me, like when I'm on a plane, when I really feel like I have that lack of control. So I think that those are great points yeah. is really focusing on the breath. Yeah. And I mean, it, again, control, right? Like in the moment, you might not be able to control the situations you're in or how people are responding or your anxiety thoughts even, but you can certainly to a certain degree control your breathing and you might not want to, you might be like, fuck this, I'm not doing this. And it might be good for you. Right. So both could be true. You could not want to do it, think it's ineffective, but you could also try it and see what happens, you know? What would be one thing for you looking back that if you had to give yourself any one piece of advice, whether it's your younger self or your 20-year-old self, what would that piece of advice be? Oh, shit. I've never gotten this question on a podcast before. Um, (laughs) This is a good one. I think, to be honest with you, um, I think of, because I've gone through a lot of trauma, have a lot of anxiety, fluctuate with depression and all that stuff. And if I could look back, I think I would have just honored my authenticity and just honored myself in different ways instead of questioning myself and trying to fit in the mold and trying to fit in a box and trying to just make my life perfect because I felt like growing up, I had a lot of the people that I, that I grew up with, they didn't have the same life experiences as me. And I had a lot of like things that were going on that were really hard for me to talk about. And I think I kind of compared my life to other people a lot. And I am coming from a white perspective as well, a place of privilege And I think it was really difficult for me to feel like I fit in with my peers because of some of the things that I've gone through. And at the same time, it would have been such a great opportunity for me to align with the people around me, you know, and to kind of be vulnerable and lean in and be like, yo, I'm going through this. And they would have been like, oh, shit, that sucks. What do you need? I just kind of distanced myself from everybody around me. And um, it really caused me to second guess myself, second guess relationships. So if I could go back in time, I'd probably go back to like, honestly, like 13, 14. And I would have just been like, yo, this shit sucks. And I need some help. And I need it now. And if I would have spoken up, I mean, I think my life would have looked a little different. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's really 13 is a hard age. That's about the age when I really went through a lot of my own traumas and a lot of my own stuff. So I, I definitely can relate and everything that you have said on this podcast is gold. And I hope that everybody listening really just takes these little gems and you know, takes it in their life, especially especially those that are dealing with anxiety and to know that, hey, it's it's not a bad thing. Because another thing that I look at your post too is you say, I just came from my therapist's office and yeah, these are oh some yeah. of the things, you know, <laughs> therapists get therapy yeah. too. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it should be normalized. You know, we I get therapy. I love that you are so open with that to say, hey, like I'm a therapist, but I get therapy too. Yeah. And I think there's a stigma. Thanks for saying that. And I think there's a stigma too, because we're kind of put on this pedestal, but like that, anytime you put yourself on a pedestal, you create this divide, right? And then there's no compassion. There's no self-compassion, right? Uh, compassion is connecting with others on a really, really human level. And I think if you're able to sit on both sides of the chair, not only do you know what it's like for the client, but also you do your own healing. And if it doesn't impair your objectivity, like if the things that you're going through aren't going to impair the work that you have with your clients, then technically it's fair game. So I always go back to the ethics code when people are like, therapist shouldn't be in therapy. I'm like, well, my ethics code says I can and I will, and I'm going to take care of myself. And if anything was like major, I would obviously step away, you know? 
Yeah. And you should. And I think that a lot of people that are in the healing field sometimes have this like level of morality that I'm better because I'm helping you. But the reality is, is that we're all human. And one thing I try to be very authentic on my show is like, I go through these things. I've gone through these things and it's constant work. You don't reach this pedestal of, you know, self-actualization and then think that you're (laughs) going to stay there your entire life. It just doesn't happen. You have to continue the work. So um, I'm so thankful for having people like you who come on this podcast who are just authentic and just say, hey, I've been through this too. This is what works for me. This is what can help you. But I still struggle as well. So um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so humbled. And um, where can people find you? Because I want people to be able to follow you because you drop some gems too. And I know that you do coaching and you kind of dabble in different things as well. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Like I said before, like huge fan of your podcast. I binged it the other day, like binged hard. So oh, I'm recommending you. this to all my friends and family right now. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also writing a book about sleep. So I'm um, really that. excited about it. It's going to come out during Sleep Awareness Month next year. I'm super pumped about it. And it's going to be a lot of tips for people who don't really fit the norm. Like if you're not able-bodied, right? Or if you're a minority, like things like that. Like I think sometimes providers come from a very like white privileged perspective and I'm white, right? So I I always like to keep that in mind as I write these things. So if that's you and you really want like, you know, more tips, be sure to follow me on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at, at Dr. Kristen Casey. And I'll link everything for everyone to find you as well. And when you write the book, we're definitely going to have to have you back on because I I love sleep and I love the topic of sleep. (laughs) I think it's very underrated and a lot of people don't realize how much sleep affects them. So I hope that they take a little bit from this podcast, follow you and uh, thank you so much. I'm so humbled to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. 